A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast where each week we take a look at some of the articles in the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On this week's episode we look at China's plummeting birth rate. Is China heading for a demographic disaster? Plus we take a look at what foreign policy might look like under Prime Minister Liz Truss. And finally the leadership contenders go head to head across the country. Can Rishi win over the grassroots? First up, in his cover piece this week, Rana Mitter looks at China's baby bust. He's a history professor at Oxford University and author of China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Rana joins me now, along with our broadcast editor, Cindy Yu. Rana, for listeners who might not be aware of this, could you start by explaining why the birth rate in China seems to be in such steep decline? Well, Lara, the birth rate in China really is in very, very steep decline compared to any other major society on Earth. And in fact, one of the things that's happened recently is that the decline has been seen by statisticians inside China to be even steeper than had been thought. So much so that next year, 2023, it looks as if India, not China, will be the most populous country in the world for the first time, actually, for you know more than 2000 years. There are two main reasons for this, one long term, one short term. One short term uh, issue, which you might say is not that short term, it's probably about 40 years, is the one child policy. I think many people will have heard of this, but just a reminder that in the late late 1970s, the Chinese government decided that to reduce what they saw as a vastly expanding population, they should essentially restrict most Chinese to having only one child, boy or girl, uh, in their family. And this created essentially two generations from the 1980s up to the mid 2010s of uh, families where there was only one child. And this has created a huge sort of um, shift in terms of the sociology of China. Nobody has sisters and brothers and so forth. But on the other hand, it also has meant that actually the economic structure of China has changed very, very significantly. So that essentially the number of young people going into the workforce has really plummeted over the course of the last few decades and there's an aim by the Chinese government to reverse it. But there is one other fact that I mentioned that was even more long term. That's something we've seen in lots of other societies in Asia and Europe really since the Second World War. And that's that as societies become richer and more prosperous, their people tend to have smaller families and fewer children. And that's true in a country like Japan, neighbour of China, which is a country that really has a very, very heavily shrinking demographics. It's rapidly becoming um, technically the oldest country in the world in terms of average age. South Korea nearby has also uh, put itself in that uh, that situation. The difference is that those countries like Japan, South Korea, also Germany, have started to have this demographic crunch after they became developed and rich countries. And China has succeeded in becoming a middle-income country, per capita GDP of about 12,000 US dollars a year, but that's nowhere close to the levels of a country like the UK, Japan, or Germany. So it's put China in what you might call a demographic trap. 
Cindy, it sounds as though young Chinese people are almost instigating a zero child policy on themselves. Is that something that you've kind of spotted speaking to people you know out there? Yeah, I think so. I think, as Rana said, people's expectations are changing. So you are probably the most well-educated generation in China, and especially that's true for women who previously weren't very educated. So uh, you're pretty well-traveled, a lot of them. We know about middle-class tourism all around the world before COVID. So people go into their lives with different expectations, really. They no longer see having children passing on the family name as the be-all and end-all of your life. Online, you see a lot of people talking about, this is my life, I want to be happy. Um, Why would I bring a child into this world when it's just going to be more effort for me? That kind of thing. But I think the the average couples in China is still having 1.3 children statistically. So they are having children. It's just that they're not having enough children to prevent the population from shrinking. And so it's more of a one-child policy they're installing on themselves because they can't handle having more than one child. And, And what's life like for women in China at the moment who do choose to have more than one child? So what's interesting is that people, you know, sometimes go into having one child. My cousin has just had her first child and she has decided not to have... She's still considering whether or not to have another one not because her child is a nightmare or anything like that um it's still very young but more because they've really worked out with with a two adult salary with the kind of lifestyle they want to lead in terms of traveling but also in terms of the education and extracurricular activities you want to give uh, your children bear in mind this is the culture of the tiger mum how can you expand that with another child or another two children which is the legal cap now on kids so she's really thinking about it very very vividly she's worked it out like if we have one more child this is kind of sacrifice we have to make and certainly we can't have three children because that means that my child won't have the best thing best of everything and I think what the one child policy has done is that is that's made it normal whereas in a country like the UK it's probably normal to have two or three children and you don't really question it in China for a whole generation my generation it's normal to only have one child and so you grow up thinking well my kids don't need any siblings so that really takes away that kind of societal pressure and Rana what will this all mean for China's progress there are a great many effects that are coming along the road quite fast Lara one is that essentially a country which is finding itself with a shrinking working age population has to really worry about pension provision because China's going to have an awful lot more older people in uh, future decades. And those people are going to rely on a lot more input from the salaries of younger people to support them for health care, to make sure that they're uh, sufficiently looked after when they perhaps can't look after themselves. And they need to be people who can actually, you know, help them out of bed or all the things that older people people need, which China isn't currently very well equipped for um, at all. There are some sort of quick fix solutions, although they're politically very difficult. One of them would be to raise the pension ages. At the moment, you can retire in China, particularly from kind of hard um, blue collar type jobs, relatively early, uh, 55 for women, 60 for men. And raising those ages to something a few years higher would help to put off the pension crisis. But you might well see people in the streets basically protesting that they've put their time and their money into the pension scheme and they want their results back, uh, back now. In terms of China's wider policy, there might be some quite significant effects. I mean, this week, we've been seeing the threats over Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And you can see that the missiles have been fired off the the coast of Taiwan by the, the Chinese army. 
There's a longer term issue that's affected by demographics as well, which is that as China's population gets smaller, the number of people who have been recruited into the armed forces has also got smaller over time. And instead, China's been thinking much more about developing its technology in other areas that might suggest high level technological warfare, things like cyber war or submarine warfare. So I think we can see China moving away in terms of any military intentions from the kind of classic D-Day landing type of, um, uh, of attack to perhaps one where actually being smart in terms of technology and being in a kind of global technological competition is really going to be much more at the heart of any um, security and military ambitions that they might have. And that, in a sense, is also a product of that demographic shift. And Cindy, is the CCP doing anything to try to convince millennial-aged women to have children. Yeah, I mean, Rana writes um, of a campaign in his piece from a few years ago where people were saying, you know, marriage isn't so hard, there's always going to be problems with it, and that's government-led. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the funny thing about the Chinese government is that it's just so... Yeah, who's to say they're wrong? Exactly. <laughs> Um, they can just be so, um, I mean, patronising in the literal sense of the word, you know, advising you on how to live your lives. And so that, that's been a propaganda campaign that's happened. There's also been some push for local differences to maternity pay and leave to make it easier. The government last year, when it raised its cap of children to three per couple, uh, talked about lowering school fees and uh, lowering house prices, all of that stuff. We're yet to see that really come through in effective policy and to have an, have an impact. I think for a lot of young people, the problems that they point to are not really something that's easily fixable by the government. For example, if, if the problem is competition in schools such that every parent, middle class parent think that they have to take their children to five different extracurricular classes a week so that they can compete for the best university places, that's more of a underlying social structure thing that I don't know how even the Chinese Communist Party I'm not sure how they would fix that Mm. and Rana how has COVID affected this has that has that sort of forced people to also rethink how they might raise a family in China I think it really has had a major effect on the way that people think about the sort of raising a larger or a smaller family. One of the things that it's definitely, I think, had an effect on is the idea that one way to essentially try and create a better lifestyle for yourself is through entrepreneurship. And even though China has highly authoritarian politics, it's had one of the most economically entrepreneurial societies anywhere on earth for decades and decades. The Chinese refer to entrepreneurship as xiahai, literally mean jumping into the sea. So it suggests a kind of exhilarating but possibly slightly dangerous adventure. The problem is that COVID has meant that the economy can shut down really almost without any notice. You know, it's become famous that if there's one case of COVID in a township in a particular area, the entire area around there could be shut down for quite some time. And of course, that's okay, tolerable, if annoying, if you're working on a state-defined salary. But if you're a private entrepreneur, it could be disastrous for your business. And I think that is having an effect on younger people who otherwise would be expected to be the people who'd get investment, go out there and try and make some kind of new business of their um, of their own. But beyond that, I think it's fair to say that also COVID has created this sense because China's borders have essentially been closed really since 2020. And they haven't really opened up other than for Chinese coming back who have to then sit in a couple of weeks of quarantine. And this means that the sense that existed before that for middle class Chinese, you could come back and forth very easily between China and the wider world. A very good example in the UK is Bista Village, the luxury shopping village, which um, Lara and Cindy, I don't know if you know anything about the place, but uh, I'm told it's uh, quite the destination for luxury luxury shoppers. And 
Well, if, if you get off the if you get off the train at Bestas Village, even now you'll know that there's an announcement in Mandarin Chinese for uh, alighting tourists. The problem is that all those young affluent Chinese tourists have gone. They're not allowed. Well, they are allowed outside the country, but they can't get back in easily, and so they don't come anymore. And that sense of the world shrinking slightly, of course, China's a huge country, but that sense of cosmopolitan internationalism, which I think shaped a generation of younger Chinese, maybe people like Cindy, who were thinking of you know China as a big player in the world. I think have had their horizons narrowed somewhat because even though they can see what's going on on the internet, there's international communication. The physical ability to travel, even next door to Southeast Asia or Japan, has simply become much, much more difficult for them. Although you do say in your piece that sort of searches for emigrating, people trying to actually leave China permanently, have have gone up. Cindy, is that something that you've you've kind of come across. Yeah, so Rana's talking about this phenomenon called renxue, which is quite a funny one, actually. It's Renxue is a Chinese term, but the R-U-N, the ren, is actually borrowing from the English word run. So it's what it means is a study of emigration, is a study of running out of the country. And I think hard evidence that this has actually happened en masse is not really there at the moment. But certainly people are talking about it much more online partly because of COVID, the last few years have been really, really tough for a lot of Chinese people, partly because of better prospects outside, you're always going to get that. And also, I think some young people are concerned about the political direction that the the country is going in. So people are talking about um, these three career paths for my generation, millennials and Zoomers. They're saying that either you can, when you graduate, these are the three career paths for this generation, you can either neijuan, which is basically to work until you drop, or you can either lie flat, tumping, which is just to bow out of the rat race altogether, or you can run. <laughs> so that, I think that... And do um, any of those involve having children? Doesn't sound um, like it. <laughs> I guess if you run, you can have children elsewhere, but you're not contributing children to China. Um, so yeah, so certainly, no, if you're lying flat, you're not having families at all and probably not even moving out of your parents' houses. So this is a very concerning mentality for the government to see in its young people. There is one particular phrase which is also becoming common on the Chinese internet and elsewhere, which is young Chinese people saying that they are, quote, the last generation. In other words, specifically saying is claiming that they just simply don't intend to have kids because they feel such a sense of anime, such a sense of, you know, disconnection with society that there's no point carrying on. And a spread of that sort of feeling is something that I think that the Chinese government would find extremely worrying. Well, Cindy and Rana, thank you very much for joining. Next up, Katie Balls this week joins me now along with Dr. Liam Fox, the MP for North Somerset and the former Defence Secretary and former International Trade Secretary. Katie, in the magazine this week, you write about what foreign policy under Prime Minister Truss might look like. What what are the kind of broader parameters of it? So I think what's interesting is the polls, and of course we can get into how reliable polls are, all suggest that Liz Truss is the favourite now to win the contest. So, And I think that's taken some by surprise. And therefore, what, what would a Truss government look like? And by far, I think where we had the clearest steer is on foreign policy. You can look at her past two briefs, Foreign Secretary and then International Trade Secretary. I think it does give us an outline, um, along with other things, you know, conversations that have been had. And I think that it would probably be a more hawkish policy um, when it comes to her approach to foreign policy than Boris Johnson's in a few ways. I think on Ukraine, you'd have a situation where it would broadly be the same in the sense that I think Liz Truss, like Rishi Sunak, planned to visit Ukraine as quickly as possible. Liz Truss's first foreign phone call would be to Zelensky. She could perhaps go further than Boris Johnson if you look at some of her comments, I think in terms of the fact that Russia must leave you know, the whole of Ukraine, including Crimea, that, that 
when she said that in her Merchant House speech, it, it led to some to say this is an escalation because this has happened before the, the full invasion in February. But I think when you think about probably the framework for Liz Truss's foreign policy, I think it comes down to um, the network of liberty is what she and her allies refer to. And I think she sees the world um, pretty black and white in terms of countries that support liberty and countries that try to block it. And I think that's how she would just govern when it comes to foreign policy, whether that's on uh, you know building alliances, defence or even trade. Liam, are you concerned at all about the prospect of Liz Truss's foreign policy that Katie outlines? Well, I think that there's been a growing consensus on foreign policy in the Conservative Party in, in recent times, I think on things like China, certainly on Russia, provoked by the events in Ukraine, perhaps less so on Iran, which I think is probably the third biggest of the foreign policy challenges. But I, I think that thinking has been moving in a, in a, in a particular direction uh, without uh, wanting to publicise it too much. But when I wrote my book, Rising Tides in 2013, I actually set out then that we would be moving away from the 20th century view of geographical blocks and we would be moving towards dealing with countries who are functionally similar to ourselves. Now, we've seen that to an extent preempted with uh, Donald Trump's political triumph of the Abraham Accords between Israel, the UAE and, and Bahrain, and then bringing in Morocco, because you've got countries there who are not geographically proximate, but they are functionally similar. And I think that's how the world is going to develop. We will be in this era of globalisation, I think, drawn towards countries who are like us. In our own case, probably AUKUS, the defence cooperation between ourselves, the United States and Australia, is again a good example of that direction of travel. So I, I think that probably on foreign policy, there's less difference between the candidates than in many of the other areas in this leadership election, which is unsurprising. And I think you're right. I think that both candidates will be slightly more hawkish than we've seen in the Boris Johnson government. Katie, what should we read into the fact that some ministers such as Ben Wallace, Tom Tugendhat and Penny Morden are now supporting Liz Truss? Well, I think there's two ways of looking at it. Some and obviously they would deny this, have accused various candidates of careerism. Now it looks as though Liz Truss is, you know, at the front of the race for number 10. And I think some of the most recent endorsements, so we've had Sadiq Javid this week coming out, is almost as though I think they're being accused of waiting to see which way the wind is blowing and then making their move. But I think when you when you mentioned Tom Tugendhat and, and Ben Wallace and Marie Trellian, I do think foreign policy is a big factor there. And when Tom Tugendhat came out to back Liz Truss, lots of his supporters, because he'd initially gone for the Tory leadership, were pretty, I think, dismayed. They didn't really like it. I think lots of the One Nation Tories who kind of saw Tom Tugendhat as their One Nation candidate were taking an anyone but Truss approach to the leadership. They saw his courting the right to the party um, but where they do have a similarity which goes beyond cabinet jobs I think is on China and the fact that Tom Tugendhat has called for a, a stronger um, stance on China and I think that position is bringing over others and the, that combines with the fact that Liz Truss is talking about increase in defence spending at a time when Rishi Sunak was not doing that I think meant that she did win some support from unlikely parts of the party when it comes to other parts of her message and um, 
through this and that's why I think if we're looking ahead to the next government and also I think to a degree if she's seen it but particularly with Liz Truss I think it'll be a very hawkish government you've got to see how far people go and what they're really saying though because for example we're talking about China and I think both candidates have been talking really tough on China but Liz Truss made comments previously about Taiwan where she effectively suggested um, that you could learn from what the West of Ukraine so you know backfilling helping saying defensive um, weaponry and lots of people took that as a sign that she wanted to help arm Taiwan now her campaign supporters are saying although well, no, actually her priority is moral support now things could be going on behind the scenes but that does suggest that I think sometimes the rhetoric you have is is harder to do once you actually get closer to the the person who really calls the shots and Lim you're firmly in the Rishi Sunak camp what would Rishi Sunak's foreign policy look like were he to become prime minister well there are several points that have been raised there that I think are worth pursuing. Number one is, yes, you have to have policy before headlines. When you have the other way around, headlines before policy, it's all very well if it's an academic debate. But if you're going to be the prime minister of the country, uh, words resonate much further than the Palace of Westminster. So I think that has to be carefully thought out. Therefore, I think there's been a bit of rowing back from the Liz Trust campaign on, on Taiwan, I think, uh, un- understandably. I think that you you mentioned, you know, about those who have been drawn to Liz Truss. I, I say nothing other than, you know, I've heard some of these people totally bad-mouthing her in private. Um, but you would say that's politics, and uh, I don't uh, uh, cast aspersions about, about anyone on that, except to say that I think they need to look at policy in the round. And I think that on issues like Iran, for example, the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, when it was chaired by Tom Tugunhat, talked about having uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard proscribed. And I think that, uh, I think it's strange that we don't sanction them, but we do Hezbollah and Hamas. And I think that as far as Rishi Sunak's concerned, that certainly would be something that would be given thought and would be on the table. I think he would want to see detailed security briefings before coming to a firm decision on that. But that would be much closer, for example, to Tom Tugendhat's position than Liz Truss's position is on that at the moment. So these things have to be weighed up. On China, um, the great debate on China has been in the Tory party, hasn't it, from the Cameron coalition onwards, which saw China as the great golden economic opportunity. Some of us have long taken the view that China may be an economic opportunity, and it's a major economic player, unlike Russia in the Cold War. But it's also a major security uh, threat to us. So how do you balance the economic opportunity and the uh, security threat? My own views, I think, fairly widely echoed in the party that in the past decade, China has moved much more to security threat than economic opportunity. And therefore, we have to be looking at a whole range of areas where we need to deal with that. So uh, Rishi talking about, for example, reviewing all UK-China research partnerships. Universities have to disclose any foreign funding over £50,000 that we um, want to deal with the banning of the Confucius Institutes, helping MI5 assist British businesses to counter Chinese spying, because I think people don't understand that industrial espionage is one of the biggest threats we face from China. Uh, People see it very much as a foreign policy, strategic issue, but there's also a domestic economic threat uh, from from cyber espionage uh, from China. So all these things need to be dealt with. I think that broadly there's an emerging consensus on this, but I think that on the education 
elements, th there is some difference between the candidates in that Rishi tends to take a stronger view on the Confucius Institutes, while uh, Liz was historically much more in support. I think one other area where there would be a difference, I think, would be on the EU and dealing with Europe in the sense, and I think this might be as much tone. I think they both, I think Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have different positions on the protocol. You can support the bill, but I think if you look at Rishi Sunak's previous interventions at these subcommittees on the protocol, I think he is far more concerned about the prospect of ratcheting things up and ending up in a trade war during a cost of living crisis if if, if it backfires um, you know you push the current legislation through and the eu effectively don't blink don't negotiate and start to take action and i think liz truss i think it's, if you look at her comments on the eu I, I i mean i always remember her first speech at tory party conference where she didn't mention the eu once as foreign secretary and she mentioned all these countries that uh, she thought you have really good relations with and it goes to this point, which is, um, I think, which Liam was talking about, which is, you know, countries far away, countries that perhaps aren't traditional allies, you know, reaching out, forging new alliances, but not what a single mention of the EU. Her first official visit to France, I think, was last month as foreign secretary. And therefore, looking at what she said in the hustings too, about how, you know, the only thing they really understand is strength. I think that you'd have uh, probably a more bullish approach from Liz Truss, where I think Rishi Sunak would probably be more, more willing to negotiate or have a softer tone and... It, we have to really wait to see which will be more successful. Liam, I'd like to ask you about the polling, which Katie mentioned earlier. Obviously, at the moment, most polling suggests that Liz Truss will be the next Prime Minister. Do you think that's accurate? Well, just before, just before I come to the polling, just to pick up uh, on that last point, Rishi, of course, having campaigned for Brexit and doesn't need to burnish his Brexit credentials in this particular race. But I think that if you're going to look at those groups that are necessary to have, for example, um, a NATO-style cooperation uh, to face down Chinese threats. You can't ignore the European Union on that. The European Union would be a powerful economic player in anything that was designed to contain or constrain China. So I think that we need to look at all our partners. But as I say, uh, Rishi doesn't need because he was a lever to, to burnish his credentials on that. On, on polling, you know, I've been up and down the country, especially in the last week, and there's a huge disconnect between some of the polls and what's happening. Of course, we've had polls that have shown a Liz Truss 2% lead amongst Conservative councillors, a 5% lead. And then we've got this outlying poll of, of YouGov. I think, I think it's very difficult to do a poll on, on membership because if you poll in a general election, you can wait by constituency. And of course, the constituencies all have the same number of votes. But in a Conservative leadership race, you'll have some constituencies that may have half a, a, a dozen members and other constituencies with a thousand members. And so weighting the constituencies doesn't weight the number of votes. And because the pollsters don't have access to, to the data, I think it's nigh on impossible for them to be able to have meaningful polls. The second thing I think that makes the polls probably not really worth reading is the fact that Conservative members are going to wait till very late. I've been hearing constantly in the mainstream media that uh, conservative activists will cast their votes and then go on holiday. I mean, that is, first of all, I think very condescending because I think they take their duty very seriously in this. But secondly, uh, a combination of the votes coming out late, the actual ballot papers coming out late, and the nature of what people perceive as the importance of getting the right candidate means that they're going to hold their votes back quite a long time. 
My own view has been that the candidate who's got the momentum in the third week of August is the candidate likely to win this contest. I know that the Liz Trust campaign want everyone to vote quickly while they perceive they've got a lead. But I think our members are waiting to see what happens at the hustings, what happens about policy development, which candidates are seemingly more logical, and which candidates they perceive, perhaps above all, are not going to necessarily be the favourites amongst Tory activists, but will actually win the swing voters. Winning the swing voters is what wins a general election. And that, when I've been talking to voters, has been very much on their minds, because the last thing that they want to see is a Labour-SNP coalition that will tear the UK apart. Katie and Nim, thank you very much for joining. And finally, Fiona Unwin is the Vice President of the West Suffolk Conservative Association. And last week, Rishi Sunak came to talk to her association. She joins me now to discuss what happened, along with fellow member and triple-hatted councillor Andy Drummond. Fiona, in the magazine this week, you write about Rishi Sunak's attempts to wow the grassroots of the Conservative Party. You were at the meeting. Can you tell us a bit about his visit? It sounds like people were quite divided at the start. Well, it was all very last minute. We only had about a day's notice to sort of gather the, the, the troops together. But we got about 90 people at one day's notice, so people were really interested to meet him. And I was asking people as they came in, and you know, who, who do you think you'll support? Who do you I knew who Andy supported because we'd already discussed it. But... and. People, some people wanted Liz Trust, some people really weren't sure. Few people were certain they wanted Rishi. But at the end of the meeting, I canvassed them all again. And what, what, what had changed? Almost all of them had come round to Rishi. They just thought, I mean, I think meeting him in the flesh was just fantastic because he is very, very impressive. He's very intelligent. He's got a very sound grasp of, of the brief. He knew he was in a rural constituency, so he, he told us what we wanted to hear about rural planning and so on. And my impression was at the end he'd won the room completely round, with a few exceptions, obviously. <laughs> Andy, what did you make of Rishi's performance? OK, well, I thought it was very good, to be perfectly honest. And um, our party chair um, for, for West Suffolk, Rachel. Um, she got me over at the end and we shook hands and she has a photo of me, the pair of us smiling. But, you know, that, that it, won't, it won't change what I intend to do. I, I will be voting for, for, for Liz Truss. And, and why is that? What, what do you like about Liz Truss? I've just really come to the conclusion that there's been a coup and I think he's involved in it. I've got some evidence. I, I, I appeared on BBC Radio Cambridge let me think, on the 25th of July on the Chris Mann show, he had Lucy Fraser on there with me and um, Lucy sort of mentioned that Rishi had started his campaign two months ago. Well, Boris only resigned on the 7th and that's, you know, that was only like a couple of weeks before that. So clearly there has been some plotting going on in the background and sadly it's only taken maybe as many as 50 MPs to to topple Boris and, and cause him to have to resign. I mean, I'm very much of the opinion that I would prefer if there was some way out of this. I mean, I know the um, 1922 committee are, are handling the, you know, the election of the, of the new leader. But um, are you aware of the Lord Crudders campaign to basically, I think it's Article 17, to actually just not accept Boris's resignation? And that was the question that I put to Rishi. And of course, he said no. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I expected him to say that. But I also Googled, if you Google Nadine Doris slams Rishi Sunak, I mean, she talks about the treachery that had gone on 
um, you know, that she had experienced and the fact that Dominic Cummings would probably come back if Rishi gets in. And I really wouldn't want that. I mean, I'm a Brexiteer for sure, but I think Dominic Cummings, his behaviour has, has been atrocious and I really wouldn't want to ever see him back in politics. Rishi was, of course, a supporter of Brexit as opposed to yes. his trust. Does that, does that concern you at all? No, no, it doesn't. I, look, Brexit could still probably be unpicked and... I very much believe that we are a sovereign nation. I think we all saw that a few weeks ago with the Platinum Jubilee. So I'm very still aligned with Brexit. I have a business, I import and export, and it's caused me some difficulties I didn't have before, but I'm very happy to have those difficulties and and and, and stay out of Europe. Yeah. So I, I want whoever does it to follow the plan to get Brexit done. And I think, you know, the next probably hurdle is is getting this year out of the way. I think we become less entangled by the time we get into 2023. Fiona, you say in your piece that the most important point Rishi made was that when it comes to a general election, Rishi is more likely to win against Labour than Liz Truss. Do you think that's something that's weighing on members' minds at the moment? Well, funny enough, I don't think many members have really thought about that. I think people are thinking just who's going to be our next leader and the next Prime Minister. The fact is that in two years' time, we've got to fight a very difficult general election to win a historic fifth term. It's a huge ask anyway. And there's no doubt that Rishi polls better among among the general public, whereas Liz Truss polls better among the members. I cannot think why. To me, Rishi's head and shoulders above Liz Truss. Andy, would you agree that Rishi has a better chance of winning in a general election? I, I'm not sure that I, I know where that data comes from, really, or, or, or would, would share the opinion. Actually, I, I think Liz Truss would make a fantastic PM, and I think she could get us through it. It is obviously a worry that there's only a couple of years left, and they'll probably coincide with my term on county. We've got um, district elections next May. They'll be the first thing that I'll be worrying about. And, um, you know, when, when the public are in love with the party, you seem to do better. And um, when, when the public are not in love with the party, you don't do so well. So, you know, I, I would think that the, the majority will be slashed. It's that majority that we have at the moment belongs to Boris. And unless you get Boris back as a leader... Forget it. We'd we'd probably end up being a hung parliament, to be perfectly honest. We've been there before. (laughs) We have. Fiona, can you tell us a bit about some of the questions that were put to Rishi and and the responses that he got? There were hundreds of questions wanted to be asked. Everybody had their hand up, which I gather was not the case when Liz Truss came to see us on Friday. My friend was there and the same sort of crew, I couldn't go. And there were only about five questions, whereas Rishi, the questions just kept coming thick and fast. A lot about rural issues, but there was NHS, there was policing, there was the union. There were questions on all different subjects, very plight questions and very intelligent questions. I was most impressed with um, my fellow members. I thought they really had a, a good grasp of, of the situation. And, um, I mean, Rishi answered questions for well over an hour and there were still more questions to come, but then he wanted to meet everybody, so he shook everybody's hand and had photographs taken. <laughs> and, Andy, it's obviously a big responsibility that members now have picking the next... Prime Minister, do you feel that responsibility? Yeah, absolutely. 
I was so pleased that I was one of the 92,000 that voted for Boris. You know, that, that was a sort of landslide victory, as, not just as the PM, but as our leader. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping really that the result will, you know, it won't be like they have to have a recount or anything. That um, I would like to see that there is a clear leader and then we all have to get behind that clear leader. And just finally, Fiona, do you, you think people will ever forgive Rishi for Boris? I don't know that there's that much to forgive, to be honest. Politics is a fairly brutal business. And if you can see that your prime minister, much as he may be loved, is just lurching from one crisis to another, perhaps it was bra- a brave thing to do. And Rishi has said, I know, that if it means he's finished in politics, so be it. But I don't think he will be. Thank you, Fiona and Andy. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you pick up the issue, you'll be able to read everything we've discussed. And if you want to subscribe, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Thanks for listening, and I do hope you'll join us again next week. Bye.